Greetings, I'm Will Tompkins, and this is the Narrow Way Podcast. This series of episodes is our 17-week study of John Bunyan's timeless book, The Pilgrim's Progress, edited by C.J. Lovick. This edition is available on Amazon in both paper and on the Kindle e-reader. It is also available on the Crossway Books website. Links to both are available in the description text of the first episode of this series. In this episode, we'll be discussing chapter 13 in our source text, Flattering Enemies and Renewed Trust. Before we begin, a moment of prayer. Father God, oh how marvelous and glorious is thy holy name. It is the name above all others. You are our living God. And grateful are we for your presence here with us. As we enter into this discussion, Father, Help us cast aside any worries or concerns of this world and let our hearts be receptive to your truth. And Father, lift up our faces and fix our eyes on your heavenly realm. And may my words be your words and may they ripple through us and out from us, changing lives as they travel forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now recall, loved ones, that when we last left our journey, We were getting to know great grace, described as follows, courageous and keen-eyed, able to wield the sword of the Spirit, God's holy word, with uncanny ability. He is one to whom weaker pilgrims turn in time of need. He is a master at spiritual warfare, and here he represents a faithful pastor or teacher or other fervent, strong-in-the-faith believer. He is the kind of faithful servant that pilgrims such as little faith must lean upon and thus be enabled to finish the race. And those upon whom other Christians lean, writes Bradley, have no room to boast, for we are all rescued by grace. And now, on to the overview of today's episode, Chapter 13, Flattering Enemies and Renewed Trust. In today's episode, we'll discuss... The flatterer, a man that flatters his neighbor, spreads a net for his feet, the shining one. For sinners saved by grace, he represents the work of the Spirit in their hearts, the atheist without God in the world. The enchanted ground, where the air naturally tends to make one drowsy, and where there is an arbor upon which if a man sleeps, tis a question, say some whether they shall ever rise or wake again in this world. And then, Hopeful's living testimony. He said, It made me love a holy life and long to do something for the honor and glory of the name of Lord Jesus. Yea, I thought that if I now had a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I could spill it all for the sake of Lord Jesus. Amen. 
Now our pilgrims saw a man coming towards them. His back was turned towards Mount Zion. He was a man of dark face, dressed in white. He asked Christian and Hopeful where they were going. They answered, To the celestial city, but knew not the way. So the flatterer said, Follow me. But his road, his way, turned ever so slightly, and eventually turned them away from the celestial city. Even so, they continued to follow. O oh, foolish men! The flatterer is disguised, in this case to look like one of God's shining ones. He seems to the pilgrims to be a fine-spoken man, but he is the perfect picture of a smooth-talking false teacher, one who brings corruption and ruin with his words. Daniel 11.32, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. The flatterer is turning their eyes away from the way, yet they continued to follow, and thus they ended up in a net, prisoners of their own making. Why is it that the sins that tripped us up in the past are often the ones that trip us up in the present? Where is our strength of commitment? Where is our obedience? Even after much teaching, even after much instruction in the Word, it seems as though we unlearn faster than we learn. Our pilgrim, Christian, certainly fell into this group, suffering as he did with his battle with spiritual pride. As a result, the flatterer easily talks our pilgrims into a meandering path that is meant to distance them from where? From the very gates of heaven. And all of this is the result of spiritual pride. The flatterer brings nothing but malfeasance and ruin with his words. Listen, loved ones, this rogue, this false prophet, transforms himself into an angel of light with one purpose, to deceive your heart and lead you on the road to apostasy. So, in summarizing flattery, we can say, he is deceitful, insincere. He is darkness pretending to be light. He is a lie disguised as truth. He inflates our ego. He hides our sin. He leads us astray until we are hopelessly ensnared in a net. So how could our two pilgrims be so deceived? Why were they not able to see through this evil faker? Because even though they knew it, they left God's word behind. They abandoned the very thing that would have kept them safe. The very thing that would have kept them safe. And then there's the map, the instructions and directions to the gate given to them by the shepherds, which they promptly forgot and never looked at. Had they not been so easily deceived, had they not forgotten to look at the map and to read the instructions, had they not strayed from the living word of God, they could have sung with King David, By the word of your lips I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. Now, as the truth of their situation is revealed to them, they weep 
and repent their sins in disregarding God's word and veering off the narrow way. Things are not looking well, but it's not God's will that they shall perish in this net. And so who appears? A shining one. Now as the shining one approaches, they see that he has a whip of small cord in his hand. He asked where they had come from and what they were doing there. They answered that they were but poor pilgrims on their way to Zion, and were deceived by one who pretended to be a pilgrim and who said, Follow me. Ah, said the shining one, that is the flatterer, a false apostle who transformed himself into an angel of light. So the shining one tears open their net and frees both Christian and hopeful. Once free, they learn that God's discipline is hard. For the shining one makes them lie down. Then he chastised them sore. Deuteronomy 25.2 But this is a kindness, a blessing from him who loves us, a reprimand, an admonishment, yes, but one that will strengthen us, preserve us, in ways that will keep us from the inevitable destruction that accompanies falling away and sets us once again on the good way in which we should walk. Second Chronicles 6.27 Let us remember that discipline is a demonstration of God's love and a call for us to repent. As many as I love, he said, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Revelation 3.19 After the chastisement, They thanked him for all his kindness and rejoiced with singing. May our living God guard and watch over our steps that we might not go astray. And may he keep us from the net of the flatterer and in the path of humility, resting in Christ alone as our one and only Savior. Amen. Now let's turn our attention to the atheist. After getting rid of the flatterer, they see up ahead a man with his back toward Zion, coming to meet them. Now consider for a moment, loved ones, what's wrong with this picture. His back is toward Zion. Shouldn't he be facing the other way? On the alert now, Hopeful admonishes them, saying, Let us be careful that he is not another flatterer. His name is Atheist. And when they meet, he asked them where they were going. And they answered, we're on our way to the celestial city. Now at this, the text tells us he mocked them and he fell into great laughter. Why? Because of how ignorant he thought they were to believe that such a place actually existed. Well, loved ones, we have no shortage of such people today, do we? These are the perpetually lost always indignant at our choices and ever eager to drag another pilgrim off the way and into the pit. Atheist told them he had looked for the city for 20 years, and since he hadn't found it, he concluded it did not exist. 20 years he looked, during which it never occurred to him to examine the condition of his own heart. And he added, I am now on my way back to get my share of those pleasures I denied myself during my useless journey to find something that does not exist. 
Now Christian, wanting to hear an honest expression of Hopeful's faith, asked, Is this man speaking truthfully? And Hopeful responds that the claims of atheists are foolish and unfounded. And he tells his brother Christian to take heed, for the atheist is one of the flatterers, and to remember what the last episode costs them. Remember here, loved ones, that a flatterer in the context of this book represents a picture of all that deludes us and appeals to our vanity. It is also a picture of a smooth-talking false teacher, sly and deceptive. And of fools it is written in Psalm 53.1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. Atheist has become a scoffer. He has abandoned the gospel. And of him it is written, The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go to the city. Ecclesiastes 10.15 He views our pilgrim's journey, indeed our journey, as tiresome and hopeless. And even though he once openly acclaimed the gospel, his heart was like a trampled piece of soil and was never softened. And thus, this atheist was never saved. For it is written, But he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and shall see this land no more. Jeremiah 22.12 From Cheevers we read, Much depends upon the weather in our soul's horizon. Sometimes, even when ascending the delectable mountains, The pilgrims are enveloped in fog all the way up. They climb and turn to see the prospect, but can see nothing. It is like ascending the Alps on a misty day, but still they climb. And now, all unexpectedly and suddenly, they rise out of the cloud and beyond it, the sun is shining. The mountains are flashing like pure alabaster. They seem to have angels' wings, and they come to the hill called Clear, and there the celestial city breaks upon them. Oh, how glorious, how merciful is such a vision! Worth all the climbing, all the fatigue, all the mist, the rain and the darkness, and now the soul can go on its way, rejoicing. Now it can say to atheists, What? No celestial city, did I not see it from the delectable mountains? O Father God, open our eyes that we may see the sweet glimpses of the glory which thou hast caused to pass before us. Amen. Well, what are the lessons here, loved ones? First, pay attention and do not be duped. Believe nothing that runs counter to the living word of God. Amen. Walk by faith, not by the blind eyes of this world. Three, seek that which you cannot see, for nothing, nothing in this world has any value in that world which is to come. And four, believe God's living word and know with certainty that you can stand on his promises. And know this also, that all atheists face a grave ending. From Ephesians 2.12, 
that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They, the atheists, will all be void for the age and all ages to come. Listen, loved ones, others are of this world, and they speak of this world, and the world hears them. But when you are troubled, seek not those who are alien to our Lord. Look not to the internet, nor to social media, nor to magazines or newspapers, for they cannot help you. They cannot bring you peace. They cannot heal your pain. Instead, look only to God's holy word, and therein find the comfort you seek, and it will bring you the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And it will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We are of God, loved ones. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Amen. 1 John 4, 5, 6. We'll turn our attention now to the enchanted gardens. Since becoming brothers in the Lord, Christian and Hopeful have been through many trials and faced many challenges, some that ended in victory and some that resulted in punishment. Whatever the outcome, they have, as men of God, licked their wounds and forged ahead with ever-increasing faithfulness, having learned from both their victories and their punishments. In all of these, we see that their level of discernment, wisdom, if you will, has grown enormously, and it's important to point out that their wisdom and faith have grown hand in hand, and at that we should not be surprised, for it is written in James 1.5.8, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all ways. And from Cheever we read, but now the pilgrims enter on the enchanted ground. The air of that region tends to such drowsiness that it disposed the pilgrims to lie down at once and sleep, and Hopeful would have done so had it not been for the warnings of Christian who bade his brother remember what the good shepherds had told them. But may I not lie down and take a short nap, he asked, Sleeping is refreshing to the laboring man, and I can scarcely keep my eyes open. Ah, these short naps for pilgrims, the sleep of death. In the enchanted air of this world, it usually begins with one of these short naps. No, there is no safety in sleeping here. None on the enchanted grounds, for it represents spiritual indolence and can lead to spiritual death. These enchanted grounds easily produce this spiritual laziness by way of a gradual but most powerful temptation. You may discover that you're napping on the enchanted grounds, 
by your lukewarm, repetitive spiritual work, like praying mechanically, or reading the word with a wandering mind, or worshiping without seeking all signs of being disengaged from God. If this is you, loved ones, then wake up. Throw some coals on that fire in your heart. Now back to the story. Christian says to his brother, hopeful to prevent us from becoming drowsy in this place. Perhaps we should have a good discussion. Hopeful agrees. And thus Christian begins asking Hopeful, what made you decide to begin this journey? That is, how did you come to the Lord? And the answer to that question is coming up. We'll begin our discussion of Hopeful's testimony by reading from Cheever. He writes, Hopeful gave Christian an account of his own conversion, and seldom indeed has there ever been a description of the workings of conscience and the leadings and discipline of divine providence and grace with an individual soul, bringing it to repentance, in which the points and main course of conviction, conversion, and Christian experience have been brought out with such beautiful distinctness and power. It is very instructive to trace them in Hopeful's relation. Now Hopeful first came to an understanding of life and death at Vanity Fair, and in his relationship with Faithful, a man of full faith, a man of conviction to his core, a man who knew what it meant to finish the race, a man who would not denounce his Lord even to save his own life, a faithful martyr for Christ to the very end. That's redeeming faith. As Hopeful Continues his testimony, we learn of his troubled, unconverted time, periods where he would remember God and be deeply troubled by his sins, which prompted anxiety and dread. Most troubling would be the times when he met a righteous man or heard someone reading the word, but the worst came when he thought of having to come to judgment himself. In this regard, His experience was more like that of Christian, who stopped up his ears with his fingers and yelled, Life! Life! Eternal life! And like Christian, he began to understand that if this life were left unchanged, he was doomed to die. So woeful over his sins was he that he began reading the word, having profitable conversations with neighbors. Whatever he could do, he did. But no matter what he did, his life, his torments did not change. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Nothing he did or could do removed his torment over his life and sin. There was no relief to be found except in Jesus. So at Faithful's urging, Hopeful prayed, nay, pleaded, with God the Father, to make known to him his Son, Christ Jesus. We learn in the text that this doesn't happen at the first prayer. No, neither at the first, nor the second, nor the third, nor the fourth, nor fifth, no, not even at the sixth. And why didn't he quit? Why didn't he give up? Because as he told Christian, 
I believed that what faithful told me was true, and that without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world could not save me. Amen. Therefore I thought to myself, if I stop praying, I will die, and I only wish to die at the throne of grace. Amen. And as Cheever puts it finally in that saying, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He found peace. And he then knew that coming to Christ and believing in him are all one. They are the same thing. He found then to whom he must look for righteousness. And it was to trust in the merits of Christ. And what was meant when it was said that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, let's examine the seven steps of Hopeful's conversion. 1. Hopeful's journey to the Lord begins with his distress over his sin, that is, his concern with the condition of his soul. 2. Still, even though he was distressed, there was internal opposition. But as he continued to struggle with his sin, a certain conviction fell upon him that, The end of these things is death. However, number three, while that conviction was growing, he remained unwilling to acknowledge the evil of sin or the damnation that follows sinning. He never imagined that God begins his work in a sinner's life by awakening him to the wretchedness of his sin. Four, So he tried changing his ways by fleeing from his sin and sinful company. He started praying and reading the word and weeping and speaking the truth. He did all these and more, but he did not yet understand that his righteousness was but filthy rags. He did not understand the futility of works. 5. Then he came to know the gospel of grace, that there was nothing he could do to save himself that the only righteousness that mattered was that imputed to him by Jesus Christ. 6. Now he learns from faithful that if he would but believe in him, the Christ, that his worthiness would be imputed to him, an unworthy sinner. And 7. Then he asks faithful, what must I do or say when I come to him? And so faithful gave him a prayer to say. And we'll read it from the text. O God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and make me know and believe in Jesus Christ. For I see that if his righteousness had not been offered, or if I have no faith in that righteousness, I am utterly cast away. Lord, I have heard that you are a merciful God and have ordained that your Son, Jesus Christ, should be the Savior of all the world. Moreover, you are willing to give him for a poor sinner like me, and I am a sinner indeed. Lord, take therefore this opportunity and magnify your grace in the salvation of my soul. Through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And in the end, Hopeful tells Christian, Then I wept and asked again, But Lord, Will you indeed accept and save even a sinner, such a great sinner as I? And I heard him say, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Amen. 
Well, loved ones, as we draw to a close, I urge you to think about your own testimony, your own believing in, coming to, Christ as Lord and Savior. Or perhaps that part of your testimony relating to your pilgrimage along the narrow way. Have you ever shared it with a non-believer? With a hopeful who lives in constant struggle with their own sin and unrighteousness? Sometimes that's the easiest and most effective way of winning someone to Christ. And why, you may ask, is it so effective? Well, it's because you've taken the focus off them and placed it on your relationship with Jesus and how he's changed your life and the joy and peace he's brought you. Try it. There are so many in these days who need to hear how Christ changes lives. You know, once when I lay in an overnight recovery room following my pacer surgery, my nurse, who had noticed the interaction between my wife and me, asked, How long have you two been together? About 35 years, we answered. Well, if you don't mind me asking, what has kept you two together all these years? Spontaneously and without even knowing it, we both gave our answer at the same time, Jesus Christ. And at that, the young woman wept, and so began a conversation that went on throughout the night. God will always open the door and bring someone to his table, but we must be willing to work in his fields. Pray and tell God you are available, and he will put someone on your path. Your testimony, loved ones, could save a life. Will you bow your heads with me and pray? Thank you, Father God, for this time of reflection and edification and for your presence here with us. We make ourselves available to you, Father. We are ready and eager to work in your fields, for the time of the harvest has come. Strengthen us, Father God. Embolden us. Prepare us for the tasks that are here now and for those that lie just ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. In our next episode, we'll discuss chapter 14, Stubborn Ignorance. Until then, loved ones, may the Comforter be with you always to guide you in the way that leads to the city.